the adult weekend of the Alton Jones Camp of May 19, 1972, presents a series of classes by Brother Harry Tennant entitled A New Way of Looking at First Principles. The subject of his third class is The Word Made Flesh. Now, there is one other aspect of this, brethren and sisters, that um, is most instructive and fascinating. What I've had to say so far, will you please indicate to me whether you've understood quite clearly how far we've got, at least in its general, in, in the general teaching. Are you quite clear about that? You're okay. Thank you. Now, as you notice, the, the subject that we're taking for this third address is the word made flesh. There is, however, something extremely clear about the promises that God made to Abraham and made to David. And that is that whoever the Savior was going to be would be of the seed of Abraham and of David. Right? Now, this isn't the spiritual seed of Abraham and David. Although that's true as well, but he's going to be greater than either of them. And therefore, it can't be that. It's of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised up unto Israel a saviour. You know, Acts chapter 2, I think, that is. Of the fruit of thy body will I raise to sit upon thy throne. So, that's clear, and that's how Matthew chapter 1 begins. Of course, that's not good enough, because if that's all that's being produced, then the situation is still here within this self-destructive circle. And there's just no remedy at all in that. When he saw that there was none to help, well, that's it. None at all. Doesn't matter how many children you have. If you had a million children, and there were people in the Old Testament who had large numbers of children, well, every one of them was a sinner. And none of them rose higher. He varied in his behavior, but none of them rose higher than mortality and final death, than being inclined towards sin. And however much he battled with it, in the end, all fell short of the glory of God. So now we want to look as to how God dealt with that situation in his wisdom. I'm therefore going to ask you a question. A basic question. You would, it's amazing, really, to think that one can be so puzzled by just one line. I'm now going to draw the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that right? I see. So you think there are problems associated with this? You don't like that? Would you like that? You wouldn't like that? I see. 
Are you like that? I'm getting a little nearer, you think. Oh, well. Very intelligent audience, I must say. <laughs> you know, you, you interest me. You fascinate me. Ah, uh, right. We better start then, shall we? There we are now with our problem. And we'll start with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, despite all that you say, some of you, and I'll set the Pharisees against the Sadducees. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Oh. I'm going to do to begin with. Let's start, shall we? Of this man's seed, so you can't start by that upright. If he's going to be of this man's seed. I know you're now grappling with the basic problem, right? And you're quite right when you begin to say, well, I really want it, I can understand it being sloping, but I really want it there, but I'd like a bit of something from here as well. You've got the problem. As a matter of fact, those are all the elements of the problem. Uh, but they need thinking over, and we'll have a look at it very carefully. First of all, from among your brethren. Act, um, Deuteronomy 18, 18. That's how the Bible sets it out. You see, this man's sin, in the beginning, Adam's sin, did not stem from the fact that there was also another kind of God who was evil. And whatever one thinks about the serpent and the tree of knowledge and so on, it's no use positing an evil God as the answer to the problem. This is the Jehovah's Witness answer to the problem. It's the ordinary Orthodox Church's answer to the problem. At least it was, though they've shifted from it now. And they don't quite know where they are. But that was their answer to the problem. Now, might I just say right away that as soon as you make that the answer to your problem, you've dealt with Adam, but you've got a bigger problem. And that's this one. And that's the problem you've got to solve in some way. And the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, or whatever, is no answer to that problem. You know, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, if I remember rightly, speak about God, and they speak about two sons. Um, one was the Son of God, and the other was uh, the uh, it was Lucifer, or whatever they care to call him. They, they tend to shift that title somewhat. At any rate, an angel who finally rebels against God, and therefore gets gets loose on the earth. Now that's the Jehovah's Witness teaching. However, the Bible says that we're going to be made like unto the angels to die no more. Well, if the angels can sin, then you haven't solved your problem. I mean, if angels can rebel, I mean, they take care to say, well, they try to hedge this around in various ways, but they're in dead trouble because you've got to explain 
How rebellion lies in that creature? You've got to explain how rebellion lies there. And what's more, if the earth is going to be perfect, you've got to be able to get rid of rebellion in the end. And therefore you must have some kind of atonement to deal with that situation. And there is nothing in Jehovah's Witness teaching, as I understand it, that gets rid of that. So, beginning with a devil doesn't get rid of your ultimate problem. It gets you over this in some small way, though it doesn't, because in fact you have completely unbalanced the situation. Because Adam didn't stand a chance if you have that kind of devil. Not really. Not at all. But that's not the situation as the Bible sets it out. It sets it out very clearly that uh, man's basic sinfulness now lies within man himself and that God is not the source of temptation or of evil. Now, Hebrews chapter 2. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, we have a mighty verse. First of all, everything that we've spoken about so far is brought together. Genesis 1, 26, Psalm 8, what's written in Ephesians chapter 1 and so on, are all brought together in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Well, that's it. And he was going to be the captain of salvation, verse 10. But they're all of one in verse 11. And then, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now that verse is real dynamite, you know. Because whatever the devil is, death can destroy it. What's more, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ had to be in this form. It had to be in a situation where he could deal with death and with the devil at the same time. That's the point. Look again. Verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. So whatever nature, whatever is involved in that verse, Jesus is not associated with angels. But four times, as in Genesis chapter 3, a position is made clear. For as much then as the children are partakers. And that word partakers is the word that's got to do with fellowship and communion. It's the word for fellowship. You know, the Bible word for fellowship means to be partakers in, to be sharers in, to have communion in. It's the very word used in connection with the breaking of bread. So, we who share his bread, when we break bread, do so because in the beginning he took part of our nature. Not a different nature. Now there were doctrines about in the first century that it was a different nature. A doctrine that he, he wasn't really tempted. A doctrine that he didn't really suffer. These were early doctrines. And they were overthrown. And John overthrows them in his first epistle. But he that denies that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh and so on. But four times God says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise. 
couldn't be clearer. Once you make absolutely certain that the nature of Jesus was the nature of man. Not the nature of Adam before he sinned. We've dealt with all that. we dealt with that with the baby and so on. It just is not good enough. Because Jesus has to enter into this situation. He's going to, re- he's going to re- resolve the problem in that context. I want you to look at it very carefully because it's an absolute marvel of the wisdom of God how this is worked out. So he shares our nature. But, let's just go to Romans chapter 8 a moment. Now Romans chapter 8 follows Romans chapter 7 in thought. Romans chapter 7 speaks about the hopelessness of this circle. The things that I would, I do not, and the things that I would not, those I do, and so on. All right? The hopelessness of man. Who can deliver me from the body of this death or this body of death? And then chapter 8 comes in and produces a state of no condemnation for them which are in Christ, which is the fourth address. Verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Marvelous verse. Much contended verse. The things about which we know least, we are most vocal about, and uh, produce our own peculiar cliches of expression, one of which lies in this verse. And there's a kind of something which is called sin in the flesh, sin hyphen in hyphen the hyphen flesh. And that's not what the verse says. Brother Roberts dealt with that long ago, so did uh, John Carter. He didn't condemn sin in the flesh. That's not what he did. He could have done that being an angel. We missed the whole point of Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 2. God can condemn sin in the flesh. Angels can condemn sin in the flesh. Anything other than man could condemn sin in the flesh. But what Romans chapter 8 says he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the marvel. Get hold of it. That's the absolute marvel of it all. He wasn't looking down at a situation and condemning sin in the flesh from afar like a holy angel. He condemned it on its own ground. And you and I who are sinners in thought and in deed, know what a wonder that was. That never in any thought or in any deed or in any word was he ever other than God's Son. That's the marvel, brethren and sisters. Now, what Paul has said here in Romans chapter 8 is, and it's what Peter says in Acts chapter 13, that those who were under the law of Moses, which came after the promises made to Abraham, let's say it was here, those who were under the law of Moses and came until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is here, were under, as it were, a double condemnation. They were under a blessing because this law provided blessings for them, but they were also under a condemnation because on every occasion when they wanted to keep the law, they couldn't. 
If you can't keep one law, then you can't keep a multiplicity of them. And so the law produced condemnation. Not because the law wasn't good, it was of God. But it was weak through the flesh. Right? That's, that's those four labels from Romans chapter 5. The flesh is weak. That's his description. It's an infirmity. Himself took our infirmities. Doesn't just mean he took our deafness, our blindness, our lameness upon himself. Wonderful as that is, and he will take all those upon himself finally in our very mortality. But he took the other infirmity, which comes through being born of Adam. Temptation from within. That's it. Now, all that lived under the law were cursed by the law. So they lived, as it were, under the double condemnation. It's really one, but this states the law of sin and death in a double form. And when Peter writes, uh, talks about this, you better look at it because it's just useful. Acts 13, I think it is. Marvellous matter. And this is right in the heart of our subject now. Verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. That's Peter speaking. There's the marvel. There was no justification under the law because you couldn't keep it any more than you can keep the one law. He that is guilty of one is guilty of all. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ was born of a woman and born under the law. And so now, has, as it were, the double hazard of the law of sin and death and the law of Moses. All right? So I drew the line, first of all, and I drew it leaning. And I drew it leaning because that's how Jesus was by his nature. Your nature and my nature, mortal. Your nature and my nature, a will of its own. And that will of its own is not God's will. And the final conflict in Gethsemane is not thy will but mine. Not my will but thine be done. That's it. That's the end. Think of it. Which is the more wonderful? To be born that way and to end that way. Or just to be born upright. That's the marvel. Brethren and sisters, they crucified him upright. They couldn't do anything else. They didn't know. But he died upright. This isn't just a, a sort of way out thought. He died on a tree. A dead tree. Right back to the garden. You know the little couplet of um, George Herbert. Adam stole the fruit. But I must climb the tree. Was ever grief like mine. The first sin was in the garden. 
the victory is in the garden. Are the parallels, brethren and sisters? They cannot be coincidence when God brings everything to bear. However, when we had a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd have to say, how can he be produced out of Adam? This is where the problem came when you said that you were not satisfied by just drawing a line that leaned over. Because whatever the gene pool in Adam, whatever variations you can produce from the genes and chromosomes here within Adam and Eve, whatever you do, you can't get out of the circle. Because that's the limit. There is no way in which you can get that to God. So John says, and the word was made flesh. There are all sorts of misunderstandings. There are all sorts of misunderstandings about the flesh of Jesus. Only because people want to settle arguments on one side or another. And we all know from experience, if we're having an argument with somebody, we take opposing positions. And what's more, we polarize our views. If you're having an argument with somebody, you want to make him wrong, then you bring everything to bear to show that he's directly opposite to you. He isn't really directly opposite any more than you are to him. You bend everything to make it look as though he's absolutely dead wrong. Right? So we do about the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. True. These are the seed of Abraham or the seed of David who were of Adam. Perfectly true. But we haven't got to forget that it was the word that was made flesh. That's the other side of the situation. What's more, we haven't got to forget that in that flesh there was victory. And the man who wants to always press over the leaning nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and forget the victory within it is doing despite the salvation. You've got to bring everything into your thinking. Well, let's think about the word made flesh. What does it mean? Well, I think Hebrews chapter 1 is the beginning. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Now, don't you notice, and it's easy to slip it and miss it, it's a simple lesson, Genesis chapter 1, and God said, Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake God's word, hath spoken by his Son. Right? It isn't just a question of some mysterious way in which the word was made flesh. The whole of what God wanted to say was said in Jesus. It was said in how he lived. Well, how he was born, how he lived, how he died, how he rose from the dead. In what he did, in what he thought, God expressed himself. Have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet thou hast not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. He that has seen me has seen the Father, who was the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. The impress of his substance. Hebrews, here it is in this very same little section here in verse 3, I think, or thereabouts. Right? And it isn't just that he's spoken unto us 
in his son. It's not that. It's a son. I don't think that his is there at all. The fact is, he, before it was in bits and pieces by the, to the fathers by the prophets. A little in the tabernacle, something in the altar, something in the incense, something in the candlestick, something in the feast, something at the time of the year, something in this man, something in that man. But at the end, instead of all these, he gave a son. And in him everything was made manifest. But he was called the son of God. And so all that God had ever promised, all the spoken word of God in the Old Testament became vibrant in Jesus. He was God's whole promises made flesh. Second Corinthians, in him all the promises of God are yea and amen. And amen isn't just the so be it word. The amen is truth. It's out of Isaiah 65. We'll see that perhaps uh, tomorrow when we conclude this. Right? Now, go a step further. Luke chapter 1. Here now is Gabriel, the angel of God. Very wonderful thing, this angel Gabriel in his message... The last time he'd appeared, apart from Zechariah in the same chapter, was the moment when he'd appeared unto Daniel and given him the prophecy of the 70 weeks and the time when God would bring in everlasting righteousness. And now as the hundreds of years have rolled by, so now he comes again and speaks to Mary. I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. And now he was just speaking and talking to a woman of Israel, a village woman. as he spoke to God of the house of David hail verse 28 thou that art highly favoured the Lord is with thee there's the echo right back surely I will be with thee I will be with thee the Lord is with thee not in Gabriel this was now speaking bringing a message that God himself was with Mary and her son was to be called Emmanuel God with us surely I will be with thee they will reverence my son God sets out himself in his son in the end God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself there it is and so he speaks to Mary in verse 30 fear not Mary for thou hast found favour with God Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Not just Saviour, but God is salvation. That's it. Great, called Son of the Highest, the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, therefore also that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Verse 38. Have you missed it, I wonder? Be it unto me according to thy word. And the word was made flesh. You thought about it. 
Mary's humility and her faithful acceptance of what the angel had spoken brought about that great moment when the word was made flesh. And so the conception of Jesus was of God. In the circle, yet set out, set a light from outside the circle. Now all that's involved, that is impossible for man to spare. You might think it made it easier. You might think it made it harder. And what you can say is it made it possible for there to be victory. I think it made it easily harder and more hardly easy that Jesus had God for his father. Every sin would have been his first sin. Every sinful thought yielded to would have been his first sinful thought. For a lifetime, he thought it was easy. He knew, he said, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. So he knew his situation. Have you thought what it was like, brethren and sisters, to know your future? Isn't one of us would like to know our future? Or we might like to know about the kingdom. I'm not speaking about that. I'm talking about the rest of our mortality. Is there, is there one of us who would like to know? And could carry it? He knew it. He said, I shall be mocked of the Gentiles. I shall be evil and treated and spat upon. I shall be scourged and lifted up. He knew it all. And it didn't deter him from going forward. Now let's think then in, the, in those terms. All he heard all the time was his father speaking to him. Now I don't think that his father was always, as it were, at his ear, saying, this is the way, walk he in it. I don't think it was that. In the word of God as we've got it was his constant delight. It was his constant food. It's to do my father's will is my meat and drink. It's more than my necessary food, you know, as the um, Old Testament Job says. But the Lord Jesus Christ had also almost what is known, what is a vision of what God wanted of him. This word vision is a bit of a puzzle, by the way. Um, I don't know whether you've thought about this. Just to give you two examples of it. One is Isaiah chapter 2. I'd always taken the word vision to have reference to, well, seeing something wonderful. This is the end of side one. We now turn it over to side two with the class already in progress. David decides that it's time he built a temple for God. Very satisfactory thought for David to have. He built his own house. He'd taken him years to build it. And he was in a house of cedar and God wasn't in a house at all. He wants to build God a house. And Nathan the prophet says right away, do all that's in thine heart for the Lord is with thee. And by the way, this is a very interesting proof that prophets were not always inspired. That is, when God spoke to them, he didn't speak to them throughout their lives. They knew when God was speaking to them. And when the message was from God, they said, Thus saith the Lord. It wasn't every thought of a prophet that was righteous, or true, or accurate. It's when they were under inspiration. And they knew when they were under inspiration. And Nathan had made a mistake. 
he said to David, do all that's in thine heart. Just look at the record here. Verse 1, 2 rather, David says, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, and what we have now is a revelation to David. A revelation concerning himself, concerning his kingdom, concerning the son that shall be. Now the interesting thing about that is in verse 17, according to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak. And that's an interesting use of the word vision, isn't it? So that when Jesus said, I do always those things that I see with my father, it's more than vision. It's, it's an actual entering into the mind of God. Once we were blind, but now we see. The eyes of your understanding being open. That's it. And that's all that's involved here in this, uh, this, this mightiness of, of, of seeing. Now, let me enter in then to the problem. Uh, because when you come to have a look at this, I want to try to find all that's involved in the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory and in the release that he's produced for us and to see whether all this is righteously done. So we have the Lord Jesus Christ born of the seed of David, of the seed of Abraham and therefore with all the afflictions that that brings. He got tired. He became hungry. <coughs> he could die. He did die. He was tempted. He was alone. He became afraid. He was troubled. You think of all the expressions that there are, and they're all his, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, who in the days of his flesh cried unto him that was able to deliver him from death and was heard in that he feared. Here's the cry of Jesus from, from his mortality. And so he's victorious. And becomes upright. This is what is meant by, I, am, I feel sure, I will be his father. He shall be my son. Two different things altogether. God was his father by God's choice. He was... God's son by his choice by living now may I just set down a piece of what I can say arithmetic algebra whatever you like to call it I don't want you to carry this too far if you're a mathematician or whatever but there it is right man in the beginning plus sin equals death I think we've got no problem about that, eh? Well, try this one. anything about algebra or anything about mathematics we say right away no 
That can't be right. Man plus sin equals death. And Jesus dies. Alright? Now just take hold of that. Because I understand this. You know, I'm not really sure that many of us get hold of what happened here. When Adam took everybody into the grave by his sin, and Jesus produces a way out by his righteousness, what I want to make absolutely plain to you is this, that he does it, actually does it, produces the way out by his righteousness. That that, that happens, actually happens in him. It is a complete reversal of that. It's the answer to that. It's the perfect answer. Now, when you saw those two equations or bits of arithmetic, whatever you care to call them, that man plus sin equals death and man plus righteousness equals death, well, you say, what's the point of being righteous then? You know, that's the, that's the question, isn't it? If, if sin produces death and righteousness reduces death, because that's what it did. What's the point of being righteous then? Now, look at Acts chapter 2. Because there's an interesting word used in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, so any explanation of the atonement that says it was just a dreadful accident is not what the Bible says. It was design of God. Now, all this is, uh, you know, now drives us into the very deepest thought, but Isaiah 53 makes it quite clear. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, this is a problem, I know. And uh, I've had people asked the question. As a matter of fact, I, I was discussing this with a brother the, the other evening, not quite this context, but we were discussing prob the problem of suffering. And, um, you know, saying, well, how could a righteous God produce suffering? And, um, well, you know, this is a great question, and um, I heard someone say just yesterday about suffering, why is it always the good people that seem to suffer, you know, and I, I, it isn't always the good people who do suffer, but when the good do suffer, then it seems to be incongruous to us. And uh, I said to the brother, I said, well now, 
You and I are both fathers. He said, yes. You and I decided that we would be fathers. He said, yes. I said, we decided, and our wives decided, that we would be parents, although we knew that to bring a child into the world, there must be pain. So maybe you may not be able to understand God, but you can understand yourself. And in that situation, you actually knew, and you made a conscious choice of a child, despite pain. You weigh everything up, right? Now it is interesting that the, very, the existence of pain is not necessarily a hindrance to one's thinking. So in, in the Lord Jesus Christ here, it's very clear that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was fully, altogether, within the purpose of God. Jesus puts it further than that. You better see this before we read the rest of Acts. Just keep your finger in Acts and come to John 10, because it's quite clear here. Here's the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Verse 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one flock, one fold, and one shepherd. And that, by the way, is the completion of the promises to Abraham, when everybody is under the one shepherd. All God's sheep under one shepherd of whatever nation or kindred or tongue or tribe they might be, all by the one shepherd. Verse 17, therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. This commandment have I received of my father. Now you start saying that if he hadn't died then he would have saved himself. He had a command. The reason for his existence. This is what makes that question about did Jesus die for himself. So I find it so ill-conceived a question to be asking. The reason that people ask the question of course is to get over, is to get over the message of leaning over of course Jesus died for himself, but he didn't think about it. He wasn't consciously thinking out his own salvation, he gave himself for us. This is the, the whole point about it. And to produce this dichotomy of thought and parceling it up into Jesus' salvation and our salvation is a, is a false approach. And it is not a scriptural approach either, because that, that breakdown isn't produced. Not in that form. Therefore, in thinking about our salvation and this work of God and this command of God as it's laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. True it was a command. True it was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The key to the understanding lies in what Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he says, I lay it down of myself. It was his cooperation. Right? When Abraham went to offer Isaac, he wouldn't have stood any chance at all of offering Isaac if Isaac hadn't been willing to be offered. He wasn't a little boy of six. He was a boy who could have picked his father up and thrown him over his shoulder. 
the submission of Isaac that assisted Abraham to offer when they went to that place. And Isaac lay. And brethren and sisters, I don't know whether you ever thought about Isaac. Do you, know, do you notice what Isaac calls God? Nobody else calls him. The fear of Isaac. Marvelous name. When Abraham offered Isaac, it wasn't just Abraham that saw Isaac die, it was Isaac that saw Isaac die. The knife was there. Isaac had already died. In Isaac's mind and in Abraham's mind. Don't misunderstand it. And God saw it that way too. Because, says the record in Hebrews, when he offered up Isaac. So it was done as far as God was concerned. And it's a marvel in both of them, in both Abraham and Isaac. We sometimes underestimate Isaac. When we get a big light, we don't see the lesser one alongside it. And we have Jesus, we don't see John the Baptist. But a marvelous man. Well, so here in this victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, he cooperated with God in what was being done. Now back to Acts chapter 2 and notice the answer. Verse 23, him being determined, delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible. Now look at it. It wasn't possible. As a matter of fact, you thought I was going to put life there for the moment. One or two of you. I heard you sort of whisper it. A bit loudly, so I'd write it. <laughs> but now have you seen what is, what's involved in that? That's an impossibility. It can't be impossible in the physical sense. It has happened. It can only be impossible in the moral, spiritual sense. Right? That's where the impossibility lies. It lies in the mind of God. It was not impossible that Adam, after he'd sinned, should live forever. There's no physical impossibility in it if God cares to perpetuate. The spiritual impossibility is that you'd then have had an eternal sinner living within, within an eternal God. And that's a, um, a moral impossibility. You can't have it. Not eternity with righteousness and sinfulness always there. God has now destroyed himself by that. <coughs> so then, when it says that it was not possible that he should be holden of it, then in fact, what has happened there is that we've got the reversal. We've actually got worked out not by some kind of wonderful parallel, and this is what normally usually happens in our thinking, we kind of think it happened in a kind of parallel. Uh, that because he was righteous, so God saw fit to raise him from the dead. It isn't that at all. Because he was righteous, death's power was broken. The gates of death were opened by Jesus, by his righteousness, and by his dying. He had to die first. He had to go into death to break its power. Now, if you come to Galatians, I'll show you the other side of it. Now, if I can put my hand on the, on the part in Galatians, I think we might find ourselves helped here. Um, 
Now, in Galatians, we have the apostle arguing the whole case of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll begin in chapter 2. He deals with Jews and Gentiles, again, in verses 13 down to 15, and makes it very clear that the Jews, by their works under the law, could not be justified. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Flesh can't be justified. There is no way in which it can of itself be justified. All that you succeed in, succeed in justifying in the end, if you're Jesus, is God. You justify God. You don't justify man. Right. He justifies himself in a, in, in a particular way for Jesus, but that's, a, that's another aspect of this matter. Now, go on uh, into chapter 3 now where he takes up this matter of the works of the law. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. That is, not by works. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, might I just take up that matter of the curse then? You see, it says there that everybody who is under the law is cursed because he doesn't continue in the things of the law. Right, you can now put your equation in another form. And the form is this. Law plus man equals curse. Right? Now, law plus Jesus equals curse. Which is exactly what we saw when we read that, um, that part in, uh, in Galatians. Now let's try to work out what God has done here. The people who are under the law, we say, were, as it were, under a double kind of curse. And how does God deliver them from it? And he does it by subjecting Jesus to what he subjects him to under the law of sin and death, which is death. But that's what he does for Jesus, under the law of sin and death. He places him under death and therefore breaks its power. Right? Now, when it comes to the law, he places Jesus under the law. Sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, there was a provision under the law that a man who died and was uh, hanged on a tree, was cursed. Now, it made no difference to the man. It just made manifest that he was ab abhorrent in the sight of God, under the law, certain kinds of 
uh, crime, and this is what happened to him. Now, when Jesus died, he, in fact, to produce his death, he's hanged on a tree. Therefore, by definition, under the law, and by nothing else at all, he's cursed. But, under the law, the curse was designed for a sinner. And since Jesus isn't a sinner, the curse itself is now broken in him. And he's broken the power of the law of Moses. Absolutely broken it. Taken it away. Now come to Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see that. What was placed in Hebrews was there especially that God might provide the way of breaking the power of the law. In the same way that a man is bound to his wife as long as he or she lives, so a man who was under the law was bound by the law so long as he lived. So when he dies, he's free from the law. And Jesus, having died in this peculiar sense, not only was freed from the law, he had broken it. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, you are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that ye were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh. That's where it was done. That's where he broke it. Nowhere else. The enmity was broken within the flesh of Christ. It wasn't an external battle. At all. There are things about this that uh, <clears throat> well, I'd love to go on to, but the, the occasionally people want to make this internal of Jesus different from the internal of other men. And, you know, for example, in discussing the temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are those who will insist that the temptations can't have come from within. If they can't have come from within, then he's different from us. Don't tell me that all your temptations come from me and from the other brethren and sisters and from the people around. 95% of our temptations come from ourselves. That's where they come from. They're self-generated. Our mind can produce them. Now, the difficulty right, lies that some people say, ah, oh, well, if the temptation comes from within yourself, therefore that's sin, but that's not true. James defines this. Every man is tempted when he is tempted of his own lust. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. Therefore, he was tempted of his own lusts. Right? And lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. Not before. So you may have the temptation and kill it. And that's how it happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. His temptation, his greatest temptation, because after all, only he knew he was going to die. The others didn't know. So his temptation didn't lie from without the desire to escape, to avoid, to evade this. It obviously came from within himself. But still, I, I don't want to pursue that too far because uh, I don't want to open actually the issue of whether there was a personal tempter there with Jesus or not. It's not whether there was or not, what, what is interesting is the nature of temptation. That's the point. So in himself he broke down the middle wall of partition and came and preached peace to us who were far off and, and to them that were nigh. So whether you were under the law of Moses or whether you were a pure Gentile, you were in need. You were in the circle. If you were, in fact, a Jew, you were in the double circle because the law got you and you had the iron band of the law around you. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ has produced the victory. He's produced the way out of the grave. Now, somebody asked me in the break, they said, that, well, surely resurrection from the dead must be by righteousness. Well, I've shown that that is so. And uh, they said, well, what about our own resurrection then? Because that too must be by righteousness. Well, that too is so. Uh, but it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may I just go a little further with this and show you? Um, now, taking the first one and taking the second, Jesus, as he appeared, as he was in nature, as he was in character, because of his nature he dies, all right, but because of his character he's brought out of the grave, right? And now, notice this, he's after the fashion of an endless life, and so now he's in God, but he's righteous, and so there is no conflict between those two, and it's not the same as raising somebody who's died, like Lazarus, from the dead, because when you raise him from the dead, you raise him that way, and he still dies, all right? There's a difference, and the resurrection of which we are now speaking, really, is not just coming out of the grave, First Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, Luke chapter 20, when it speaks of resurrection, isn't just speaking of popping up out of a grave, all right? Because the foolish virgins are going to do that. The unjust steward is going to do that. They'll all come out of the grave. But when Luke 20 talks about the resurrection, and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection, it's talking about bringing people out of the grave to have eternal life. Not with it, but to have it. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Doesn't mean he comes out of the grave at the first resurrection. It means that he's got an inheritance by the first resurrection. It's the resurrection of life. The resurrection to eternal life. That's what it's, it's speaking about here. Now with Jesus, of course, his resurrection is to eternal life. There's, no, there's nothing in that situation that's not within the righteousness of God. Nothing at all. By having caused Jesus to be born and given him that divinely quickened mind whereby he cries, Abba, Father, God has injected into this situation the means of our redemption. By his death, the Lord Jesus Christ breaks, A, the law of sin and death and the curse of the law of Moses. And the law is finished. It's done. Although the law and the prophets were until John, it's not their speaking just of the law of Moses has been finished with John the Baptist. But that, that teaching which was in the law and the prophets was until John. And now, from that time onwards, the gospel of the kingdom of God is here, which tells us something about the baptism of John, by the way. But here, the law is finished in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's over. It's got no more power at all. It's done. Its power has been broken. And he's made both one. Which two has he made one? He's made that one and this one one. He's made this one and that one one. He's made Jew and Gentile one. Right? So he's brought everything together. And where did he bring them together? In his flesh. Now the interesting thing is that the flesh that we celebrate, and this is the wonder and why we've got to be very careful about how we use it. The flesh we have in the, in the bread and the wine, the bread is his flesh. But it's not that that we're celebrating. It's that and that that we're celebrating. 
the uprightness of Jesus wrought in this flesh. Here was the victory. There never had been a human body since the days of Adam in which sin had not expressed itself. Now the interesting thing is it looked as though he was the victim of sin. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And that doesn't mean a sin offering. Read John Carter on it. It's extremely clear. What it looked like when he was crucified is, oh look, he's like all other sinners, two thieves and Jesus. All suffering the same thing. Wages of sin is death. Made him to be sin for us. There he is, look, the curse of the law curses everybody that hangs on a tree. He's cursed. The Lord's got him in the end. And that's what, that's what seemed to the people around. But what seems is not what was happening. Because now the seed of Abraham and the seed of David were made sure in the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith of this man that no flesh should could, uh, be justified in his presence or be glorified in his presence. First Corinthians chapter 1 is Jesus' self-humility. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped at to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and being made in the form of a man, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. So there it is. And so his body was transformed. And for the first time, one who was of Adam, of Abraham, of David, came out of the grave to receive the gift of God, even eternal life, and that we celebrate in the bread that we take week by week and share if we are acceptable this faith of the victory of Jesus Christ. And your part and mine in that, how we are involved in that, God willing, I'll deal with tomorrow morning. 